We are literally hours away from the New Year's, and some of us are anticipating uh, New Year's resolutions and goals to achieve, new decisions uh, to be made about our finances, perhaps our careers, positions at work, maybe retirement, maybe places of education for yourself or your children, grandchildren, maybe our waistlines, maybe some people are thinking about losing a couple LBs, our paths in life as to where God is directing you and pointing you to, a new direction, new adventure, and this requires change. Some of you are excited, and I would imagine that some are frightened of this potential change. Well, because change is change, right? Change is uh, inevitable. Change is the only constant. Change is hard. Change is necessary. Change is beneficial, though. Change is a good thing. And some of us are really wanting this year to end because they're ready for new change. You've witnessed some things this past year that you really did not expect, you did not see coming, and there's a change, and now what? It's been a a long year. It's been a difficult year. A year met with trial after trial, and yet another year approaches, and we see perhaps unforeseeably new change in trials in the coming year. And I'm going to shock you this morning by saying that um, you are on trial this morning. When you walked in this morning, you did not know that you were stepping into the courtroom and that you are on trial. But I will kind of warn you, don't worry I'm not the judge, I'm not the jury, I'm not the prosecutor, I'm not even your lawyer. I'm going to be your courtroom interpreter this morning. It's a really cool job. My job is to interpret and to translate information and language to you so that you understand what is going to happen at your trial. And I'm going to share with you some questions that you might be asked A good courtroom interpreter must have the ability to translate faithfully without adding to the questions or answered given to you. And I will be impartial today because I'm just going to modestly translate information. You will get to decide whether or not you'll be convicted or if you convince yourself, I got nothing to do with that. I didn't do anything wrong. What's interesting about the words convinced and conviction is that they're similar in spelling, but vastly different in context. Conviction is a firm belief in something, a strong personal conviction, and convincing is a strong belief too, however it can be persuaded by outside influences and change of environments. Peer pressure is an example of that. These two words mirror thought patterns and behaviors, and in the natural human psychology world, it's known as adaptation, but in the spiritual world, it is not congruent. In the end, how do you tell the difference? One causes a profound internal discomfort, while the other conforms and modifies to meet the immediate circumstances. So one day, there will be a trial. And you'll either be settled in the verdict, 
convinced you didn't do anything wrong, or you could play the blame game, like Adam and Eve. I hate to really call Eve out, like, did she, you know, take one bite, or did she eat the whole apple? Did she make apple pie? Like, I want more context there. But by chapter three in Genesis, we see that God created, what he had created was really, really good, became destroyed, by one convincing decision. Let's go back to where sin began, where it first originated. In chapter three of Genesis, we start with verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any animal that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, this is the, the, the enemy, he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. This is a really important note to mark down in your head today. Then they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man said to his, then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord, of the God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I'm in the garden. I was afraid, so I hid. Here's the problem with sin. Sin can be pragmatic. Sin is a sense of you are convinced to cover it up, yet you're also convinced you want more. Sin is like Lay's potato chips. You just can't have one. And oftentimes, sin includes accomplices. Sin skews your rational attempts to thwart the good in you. Sin never offers a holy way out. Only more bad decisions, terrible decisions. And by verse 11, God has recognized the turn of events that had plagued the garden. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of this fruit to eat and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And she said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. See what sin does? Sin rules decisions back and forth on this blame game between Adam and Eve. They never stopped to contemplate and to think, wait a minute, what have we done? There was no conviction. You can be thoroughly convinced of your sin, but will it arrest you? Will it, would it arrest you and convict you? Would you be willing to convict and be convicted and to confess, to make the change, to be transformed? You see, sin is a very personal topic. It's both subjective and objective. It's eternal, internal, and external. And the consequences of sin affect 
all of us. It's all the way around. If we're honest with ourselves, we really don't need to look far to discover where we're off a bit. But our intentions are so good, right? You could have really, really good intentions in the middle of your sin. You can justify quickly the good intentions and then sin creeps in. But really good intentions, my mom used to say, are like belly buttons. Everyone has one. Good intentions aren't, to, aren't going to get you out of the pit of hell that you're facing when maybe, maybe the truth that you're facing is that you're caught up in your own lie, your own scheme. We have to be honest with ourselves. Get honest with yourself. Honesty is the best place to live. And God, honesty with God is, our, is the best place to live. And that's our primary focus. When you're honest with yourself and you're honest with God, man, it is a sweet, sacred place. It is the best place to live. Impossibilities become possible when you're honest with God. We think we can hide from God what we no longer want to, what we think we can hide from God is, is burden and shame. And we no longer have this thing for ourselves because if we reveal it to God, then, then it's God. But instead, what if we thought it was a secret place with God? When we bring our mess, our junk, whatever it is, whatever the sin is, whatever the secrets that nobody knows, when we bring that to God, we allow God to help us heal the brokenness from within. We were not created to live isolated and to live in the shadows, to be hidden. We were created to live freely with the creator and the created. Would you be brave enough today to say, God convict me, arrest me, and I pray that I'm set free? Would you sing like a bird, your honor, if it would please the court? I have something to say. I was wrong. I know what I did was wrong. My decisions that I made were not right. They were not good. They were not forgiving. They were not merciful. My decisions not only affected my life, but so many lives around me. I was selfish. I was arrogant. I was full of pride. I was self-serving in sin. I'm truly sorry. Please forgive me and have mercy on me. It takes someone genuinely sorrowful to admit that. It's not necessarily anyone of great courage. It just takes someone with genuine sorrow. And godly sorrow leads to repentance. The author of Corinthians, his name is Paul, and he shares this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. We're gonna unpack that first portion of the scripture. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Repentance is such a church word. Um, repentance means it's making the omission of the wrong and the attempt to make it right. You may not reverse the harm, but you can sure try. And being so affected by your decision that you turn from it, never to go back to it again. 
You cannot turn towards God without turning away from things that he no longer, like he despises, he hates. Repentance must never be thought as a to-do list or a checklist. But let me, let me kind of um, foreshadow this. Repentance is rooted in the, in the idea that God is so merciful that he wants to rescue you. Repentance is the idea that God wants to rescue you. His spirit is making an allowance to let us know, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're heading for the wrong direction. So come back this way and he rescues us. And this rescue isn't regrettable. He doesn't bring it up all the time like an earthly father. Like, remember when I got you out of that mess? You know what I did for you. God doesn't do that. He's saying, come to me and let me hear your heart. Let me see your heart. When we repent, God does not regret the decision in saving us, but we have to come to God with a genuine heart. It's a serious work of the heart. It's a wrestling. It's a wrestle like you've never had before because it is a fight for your soul. Your soul's at stake and something else doesn't want you to live into the fullness that you were created for. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction to transform you, to bring a metamorphosis to your life so that when you are transformed, that you are living into the life that God had intended from the beginning of time, from creation. Now there is a character at this trial whose job is only to make your life a living hell here on this earth. That's his job. I absolutely hate to introduce you to him, but that's my job as a courtroom interpreter. He's the prosecutor on this case. He works by using accusatory, accusa, what's that word? As accusatory, man, words are hard. Language, namely conviction, that's his job. He knows that you cannot sustain a godly life if you allow sin and shame and guilt to rue the day. Sin and shame and guilt are from Satan himself. The enemy will prosecute with the harshest tactics. The enemy knows how to frighten you, how to keep you feeling trapped, keep you feeling bondage, keep you quiet and afraid. That's his job. The enemy knows what buttons to push. He doesn't know your thoughts though. Only God does. God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And he's omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere. However, the enemy has got some guts. He's powerful too. He knows how to keep you very comfortable, how to confuse you, distract you, fool you, and deceive you. Remember, he's elusive and he's crafty. We can think, believe, know that we can never get out. We can try as hard as we can to get out of whatever situation we are in with failed attempts because fear and insecurity are gripping. That is what he does to us. The character witness that I originally introduced you to earlier that speaks about the same tactics, his name's Paul, he talks about his own struggles in Romans 7. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And this is what Paul says. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, then this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. 
It's the sin living in me that does it. So Paul has this like aha moment. Wait a minute. I want to do what is right and holy and just. I just don't know how to do it because sin is dictating my life. But he goes on to say this in verse 21. I have discovered this principle in life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin and it's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Isn't that just conviction? Thank God that there's someone that will save me. We understand, Paul, don't we? We all get it. We've all been there that we do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we ought to do, what we should do. What would happen if we took a serious internal investigation of our spiritual lives? Would we cover up our fraudulent dealings with Satan? In matters of speaking for this, for this case, there's a paradox for some. How can I be convicted? I've never committed a crime. I've never killed anyone. You know, gossip and slander go against the law of God, which is love. If we are not speaking life into those around us, but only darkness by our words and our actions, and that is, that is spiritual death in a sense. I never worshiped anything but God, some say. Your calendar and your bank account will show you what you idolize. Beyond the Ten Commandments and even the seven deadly sins, which are pride, lust, sloth, gluttony, envy, wrath, and greed, would you still be okay exaggerating the stories to anyone who, who would believe you? Would you still tell the tall tales, the white lies? Because no one will know the truth. How will they know? They're going to know. No one's going to know. They're going to know. And if you know, you know. <laughs> Listen, most people can sniff out half-truths and know that the other half is the lie. You can believe the misconception of your lie, and that's the scary part about it. We are often self-deceived. Self-deception is dangerous because you're essentially living in to a lie, believing that it is truth, and you've created that with the enemy. And most people um, don't even know. And what's so significant about that story is that lives are built off of lies. And that is the scary part because we become numb to it. When we succumb to sin, it numbs us. Just one more time, just one more drink, just one more hit, just one more girl, just one more guy, just one more swipe, just one more. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to awaken us and to sting us a little bit so that we can recognize where we've potentially gone numb and have gone wrong. I understand how conviction had came over some of the people that Jesus met and how he impacted them in the gospels. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunkards, even the downcasted were convicted of their sin and self-righteousness, even though it was in the flesh. Their hearts were pure because of repentance. There was nowhere else to go. They needed him. And once they realized that they were living inherently wrong, they recognized 
There was a new way of life. And there was a seismic shift in their life that allowed them to come to Jesus. There was a metamorphosis. There was a change. They were no longer in the chrysalis. They were out and free to fly. But the Pharisees, they just couldn't do that. And they just would not do that. They convinced themselves they did not need Jesus because what would that mean if they did? That would reveal to everyone that their religiosity was truly false, that their religion was truly fake. They couldn't do that. Their pride, their legalism to the law, their self-focus, their self-righteousness, their bitterness for who Jesus was claiming to be, their perfect religion is what convinced them blindly. And Jesus chastised them. Man, reading Matthew 23 will really, really convict you. This is what Jesus said. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Ouch. Could that be far worse to deal with than the more obvious sins of the flesh? Absolutely, because it's a heart matter. I think sometimes we think of sin as like headlines and breaking news in our life. Callie Lindenfelser on trial for drunk driving and hitting a parked police car. If that would happen, that would be all over the news. Yet oftentimes it's a crawl at the bottom of the screen that no one pays attention to. Callie inflated in the truth in that story. Callie lied on her taxes. Callie said she spent 20 when she really spent 40. Callie was heard gossiping about the neighbors. Callie got angry at her kids for no reason. Callie stepped on the neighbor's cat and laughed about it. It's the little lies. It's the secretive lies that no one really knows about. But the greatest obstacle is being honest with yourself. Really being honest with yourself and discovering the lie, the sin in your life. And when you do, confess it. That is the hardest obstacle, is to discover what is it that I'm hanging on to that no one knows, that I know is not right, that I know is wrong. Confess it. It's life-changing when you do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, says the word. Do you want to be cleansed from any unrighteousness in your life? Do you want to be purified and set free from the bondage of sin? Yes, the answer is yes. We want that this morning. You know, there is a holy swagger about a person when they are walking daily with humble integrity and godly character. I'm not saying that they're perfect and that they're holier than thou. I'm just saying that they have been set free and you can tell. You can tell that they're no longer bound by chains, that they're no longer a slave to sin. Now, I've used that word sin a lot this morning, and as an interpreter, I must share what sin is. Sin is whatever is outside the will of God, whether it's willful disobedience or if it's original sin. John Resley, one of our forefathers of our faith, the Nazarene, he wrote about his mother, Susanna, and this is what he wrote as his mother's depiction of sin. How would you judge the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasure? Use this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sight of God, takes off the relish and the thirst for spiritual things, or increases the authority of your body over your mind, then that to you is sin. However innocent, 
it may appear itself. By this you test that you may detect evil no matter how subtly or how plausible temptation can be presented to you. Isn't that amazing? The relish, whatever takes off the relish of the love of God. Remember how we have to turn towards God? When we turn towards God, we're turning away from things that he is against. Are we relishing this or are we relishing him? Sin does not include mistakes or lapse of judgment. So you might forget to set your alarm and you wake up and you're late for work and you gotta call your boss and say, hey, I'm late for work. But if you continue to do that and you continue to tell your boss, hey, I'm late for work and you're lying, that's no bueno, that is sin. Now let's unpack the second portion of this verse that we began with. Worldly sorrow brings death. We must change and grow and learn and adapt to the ever-changing conditions of our walk with Jesus. Who you are today is going to be very, very different than, you are, than your walk with Jesus five years from now and 10 years ago. So there's this changing, but he doesn't change. Jesus will reveal to us in the fullness of his time what I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry attitudes of the heart that we still hold on to and cling to are. I was there once. I had notions of indifference, um, not really affected by maybe by those around me that were kind of struggling with things, intolerance at its best. But the jury knows the standard of right and wrong in cases. And the jury anticipates hearing testimony and facts of your life. What is the testimony of your life? What are the facts about you that will be revealed one day? Because the jury is listening and watching. The jury is Jesus. Jesus decides the facts in the accordance with the principle of law. Remember, the law is of love. And just like the appointed foreperson who reads the verdict to the open court for the judge to decide the sentence, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Will the jury find in our favor that we exhibit the standard of love or of hate? Exhibit self-righteousness Godly righteousness? Are we petty with our attitudes about how we're perceived or not perceived? Do we exhibit a forgiving spirit or a withholding spirit? Do we hold grudges because we feel like that person does not deserve mercy or forgiveness? Do we exhibit slander or gossip rather than speaking life and blessings into people? Do we exhibit behaviors that you know are not moral or ethical in your character? What about how we see the people of different color, or different ethnicities, or the conditions that people live in that are not held up to your standard? Hmm. Does it affect me? Not really. It's not my problem. And see, that's the problem. It's a heart problem. God grieves over this. And this is the sin that we often don't recognize because it's not of the flesh. It's the lack of grieving with God over these primal things that began in the garden. And this is what Paul says in the, the remainder of this passage that he's sharing. Paul's concept is not about being perfect, but of a holiness that's internal, and it changes the attitude of our heart. Perfection in the Western standard culture of thinking is filters and facades. It's perfect because I put a filter on it. No one will see the broken me. I filtered it. But what Paul is saying is so interesting. He's sharing that the standard of personal perfect holiness is not just getting rid of the bad 
by filtering it, but a continual pursuance of godliness and of holiness on the inside. He's implying that Christian perfection is a continual process of cleansing of our internal filthiness of the flesh to becoming more Christ-like every day. That is what Nazarenes called entire sanctification. Activating the fruit of the spirit in all we do, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So the question that you're asking, I know that you're just dying to ask this question, what is the purpose for my sorrow in my sin? It is to bring you to trust in the work of your lawyer. It is not your sorrow that cleanses you from sin, but the blood shed on the cross. It is the goodness of your lawyer that leads one to the cross. In doing so, the purpose for the sorrow of your sin will be revealed. You have the best lawyer in the courts of heaven. The Holy Spirit is your lawyer. The Holy Spirit is your wise counsel. He helps you in your fight. He provides everything you need for your trial. He is full of hope and a faithful encourager. The Holy Spirit is full of power. To name a few, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. You can call the Holy Spirit anytime. He will never put you on hold and the receptionist won't say, I'll call you back. He will call call you when you call him and he has a direct line to you and you have a direct line to the Holy Spirit. He is sharp and he is always on time. He will never fail you. The Holy Spirit never fails, but God is the judge. Oh no. He makes a decision. Sometimes harsh punishments are required due to the severity of the sin. Yes, the hand of God is the gavel and he will bring it down because a decision needs to be made. I think sometimes we think, oh, God is so good. No, there was a time where his hand came down on people. There there was a time where there needs to be a punishment and he showed it in the word. But God has all authority to proclaim someone guilty or not. God is not an ordinary judge looking for the harshest punishment He's a kind judge looking for any way possible to acquit you by bringing the counsel of repentance in hopes that you would recognize your actions, your behavior, your attitude towards sin, the repentance of it, to changing the pivoting and moving forward in that direction. Because our judge delights over us, he delights in showing mercy. In the book of James, it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that good? That his mercy triumphs over judgment. It's not just good to hear that his mercy triumphs over judgment, but to know that it was displayed on the cross and who was nailed to the cross. The judgment was death and the penalty was the carrying it out on the cross. And there was one that did that for us. Are you willing to plead your case and your cause to Christ Jesus about what you've done today? Are you willing to lay down your justifications for your sin this morning? Would you stand blameless before the court justified? In the courtroom of public opinion, that feeling will crush you. We, we care more about what everybody else thinks about us. 
but Jesus is life-giving. He gives you life to stand blameless. He's the one we need to spend our time pleasing and care more about, less driven by our own desires, desires of others or desires of this world, but more driven by his desires. Listen, the verdict will be read one day, and I have hope for many. There's a great hope for you, but that's a personal hope. And there's individual maybe in this place, influenced by in our circles that do not know Jesus. We have been given grace and an obligation to help them understand who he is, what he has done, and what grace is. Grace is a power that enables us to love and to motivate in seeking people to love together and to love God. Jesus died on on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And it was that grace that saved us. And we offer this story of hope to those all around us who are desperately needing this grace. Forgiveness of sins and the eternal life are available to all who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And those accepting Jesus should repent, confess of their sin, and confess the faith of Jesus being not only their Savior, but their Lord of their life that will rule over their life and to be baptized. If Jesus did not die, if the tomb is still there with his body laying in it, then what was that all for? Then death continues to rule the day. Jesus had to die. He had to face and experience death and the resurrection so that we may overcome sin and death too. Our sin is not too great that it covers up what Jesus did on the cross. What he did on the cross doesn't mask our sin. What Jesus did on the cross destroys sin. Now, this grace that is all-encompassing, it doesn't mean, well, Jesus died for my sin. I have this grace so I can keep on sinning. No, that's not how that works. Paul, again, says in Roman, we are those who have died to sin, so how can we live in it any, any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that as just as Jesus was raised from the the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This new life and this we people that Paul is talking about is the forming of groups back in the day called kairos. Kairos is an ancient Greek word meaning right or critical moment. It wasn't a novelty, it was a necessity. It was a critical time, a right time, a necessary time to create spaces and places where people said, I once was, but now I am. So that the church was stronger in the culture that it was stronger in the community of people and stronger in the missional ways that they would live out and love God. This new life, this new way of living requires conviction. It requires honesty, godly sorrow, repentance, and a surrender. But it first begins with prayer. We must earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to touch our mind and our heart. Scripture and prayer go together like a peanut butter and a Nutella sandwich. It's stuck together in this ooey gooey yumminess. 
It's not isolated, it's stuck together. So when praying about such questions as this, God, is there something I need to be honest with myself about? God, is there something that you are convicting me of? God, is there something that you're calling me to do? God, is there something that you're calling me to stop doing? God, who do I need to make amends with and ask for forgiveness or to forgive? What is my responsibility in that? Ask God to reveal it to you in his word. Our God is full of clarity. He will never convince you to do something that it's against his own word. God will never say, nope, forget them. Turn, turn away from that. They hurt you. They don't need to be forgiven. Move on. God doesn't say that. God's desire is to bring unity among his creation. And often it starts with the smallest yet most powerful words of, dear God, I need to talk to you. Is now a good time? It's always a good time. As we close today's message, it is our response time. I began this message by saying that change is inevitable. Change is hard. Change is necessary, but change is a really good thing. And some here today, I believe, need a change. Some have been waiting for the right time, waiting for the right moment. Listen, today's your day. Don't wait another day to give it some thought, whatever that you've been holding on to, give it to Jesus. Today's your day. Don't listen to the accusing voice that says, do it tomorrow when you've had time to think about it, sleep on it and start the new year, live it up tonight. Today's the day. Don't wait one more second. Come to Christ, give your life to Christ if you haven't already. Jesus called people in public, did you know that? All those that came to salvation came to him in public except for one. And his name was Nicodemus and he was a Pharisee. And he came to him in the dark of night because of his own lack of con conviction. He wasn't, he was convinced, but he was not convicted. But Jesus called people in public. So if you would be so courageous, would you come now? Would you come to the altar and give your life to Christ? Would you tell Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Wipe my slate clean. I call upon you now to teach me how to live holy and righteous for you. Here is where I lay it down. This is my surrender. I will make room for you. I trust you as my Lord and Savior over my life. Listen, I won't call you out, but I'll call you into the family of God. Jesus called people in public. Would you be courageous enough to do that this morning? And you're thinking, man, I just, I cannot come forward with all these people looking at me, staring at me, trust me. They're not looking at you. They're looking at their own self of what they're thinking about. And if you are courageous enough, I guarantee someone would come down and pray with you. Trust me, someone would walk with you. It just takes one step. Will you take one step this morning? I understand anxiety and fear can be really gripping because I was in that place too. 
It was just too much to handle openly and I get it. I totally get that, I wanna connect with you. And there is a connect card in your bulletin. This is our response time. This is what this was all for. There's some questions on your connect card, some declaration statements that you're, that you're kind of processing even now where you are and what you're needing for prayers and someone will get in touch with you. Or maybe you're feeling though, um, something's off. I, I've said yes to Jesus, but something, something, there is a war happening inside. And I just need someone to pray with me. Maybe I wanna rededicate my life, do it. Today is the day of forgiveness and repentance. I'm not tooting my own horn when I say this, but I do believe this message was for someone today. And we are closing the service with baptism today. And we have two people that are getting baptized. For those that are getting baptized, you may, you may grab, grab your belongings and, and head to the back. But I would love to have more in the water. If there was someone here today that thought, man, I've been wrestling on something for this whole year, this whole month, this whole week, this whole night, this whole morning. Could it be you? You're probably thinking, I don't want to. I want to, but I'm not ready. I don't have clothes, I don't have a towel. Guess what? I removed all obstacles for you. I went to Walmart yesterday and I got clothes and I got towels. I've got it right down the hallway. I've removed all obstacles for you this morning. They're just outside the stores and there's bathrooms down the hall. You can follow this big guy if you wanna do that. And you're thinking, you know what? I want to, but my family's not here. That is okay. We're live stream, right? Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we, will, we will work it out. There's baptisms here all the time and you can write that down on your communication card. Hey, I wanna be baptized, but I really want my family here. I want them present. We'll get in touch with you and we will make that happen for you. But this is an opportunity to make a life-changing decision today to say your yes to Jesus in this moment. I want to end this message on a focus, some challenge that we have for ourselves. Fresh and new hope and some celebration and there's places to mark a new communication card. The first one is God, help me be honest with myself and with you. Jesus, teach me how to trust you. Holy Spirit, guide and direct me on my next steps. And here's some celebrations. I've accepted the Lord Jesus as my personal savior and I'm telling, I'm challenging you to tell someone Tell anybody, tell everybody that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior today. And if this is you, I know, I know, we know that all of heaven is celebrating right now. That someone said yes and a soul is saved and they would be reunited with the Creator one day when our time has come. And lastly, I would like to be baptized. Please have a pastor uh, reach out to me. And one more thing, the Kairos, the Kairos groups of people. I really challenge those that are attending and maybe you're new today, get in a group of people. It is life-giving. There's new ones starting. In the beginning of the year, we have Sunday school groups. We have all kinds of groups for all ages, all genders, everyone. You need people that will not only pray with you, hold you accountable, but for just for fellowship, just to laugh and enjoy life together. Now, as we close today, I am still calling on that one. If you are feeling led, I'll 
meet you back there. And let's do this. Rebecca's going to close us now.